you for your word and its truth. I thank you. It is through your word that we know you. We know what's important to you. We understand your love for us. We understand everything we know that's of any value is because of your word. And I, I thank you for it. And I thank you for these ladies and how hard they've studied. And Lord, I thank you for these chapters that reveal so much to us. And I pray that you'd open the eyes of our heart and that we could see what it is you have for us this morning. Uh, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, some of you are old enough, thank you, to remember the 1960s TV show Mission Impossible. You remember that? It was one of my favorites. And each week, a group of extraordinary spies undertook a hazardous mission that would save the world from a dire threat. And then remember the tape recorder always dissolved at the end? Mm -hmm. Well, I feel like we have Mission Impossible here this morning. We have two very difficult chapters to cover in only 30 minutes. But you know what? My challenge is nothing compared to the impossible mission the disciples faced. And after telling them that he's sending the Holy Spirit who's going to teach them and enable them to be fruitful, chapter 16 begins with Jesus telling his disciples that not only will they be hated, but an hour is coming when the people who kill them think they're doing the service for God. And the promised certainty of persecution and death would be enough to make most people run for the hills. And Jesus later tells them that they will all desert him and be scattered. Now, if you were in charge of this mission, would you entrust the greatest truth the world has ever known to a group of men who don't understand what you're telling them and who are going to flee at the first sign of opposition? How on earth did this message get off, this, this mission get off the ground? Well, you know what? Jesus knew exactly what was needed. And the truths that he taught the disciples are the same truths that we need to know today. So first of all, as we start chapter 16, he tells the disciples that they need to understand that opposition from the world does not mean abandonment from God. These things I've spoken to you so that you may be kept from stumbling. They will make you outcasts and kill you, but they don't know the Father or me. And when this happens, remember that I told you this. Jesus does not want the disciples to be taken by surprise and be tempted to abandon the faith when the going got tough. And when they remember what Jesus said, they'll be assured that what ha what's happening to them is not outside his knowledge or control. And the treatment of evil men can never separate the believer from God's love because opposition does not mean abandonment. Well, the next thing the disciples need to understand is that even though Jesus will not physically be present, they're not going alone. They're not on their own. Jesus is sending the Holy Spirit on the mission too. I tell you the truth. It's to your advantage that I go away. For if I don't go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I'll send him to you. And God provided his disciples with one who would be their friend and helper forever. You know, so what exactly is the Spirit going to do? <clears throat> he tells us, <clears throat> excuse me, and he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. Concerning sin because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you no longer see me. And concerning judgment because the ruler of this world has been judged. Now, this is a fascinating statement. John tells us that the helper, the comforter, the paraclete, the one called alongside to help, is also the one who convicts. Now, the Greek word for convict 
is the word elenco, and it means to cross-examine someone to show them their error and to point out the holes in their story. You unravel their view of things. That's what the, that word means. And one of the very first signs that the Holy Spirit is working in a person's life is that they feel challenged by the divine prosecutor. And the advocate begins to prosecute or cross-examine us in order to convince us that we are indeed guilty before God. You can't be a Christian unless you've had the experience of the Lord dealing with you at the center of your being. You can't. And the Spirit goes after conviction of three things, sin, righteousness, and judgment. So to be convicted of sin does not mean that we have a guilty conscience for breaking the Ten Commandments, but something far more serious. It's the sin of not believing in Jesus. All sin has its root in unbelief in the heart. And the most pernicious, evil form of unbelief is the rejection of the Son of God. So when the Holy Spirit, Reuben Torrey says, touches a man's heart, he no longer looks upon unbelief as a mark of intellectual superiority. He does not look upon it as mere misfortune. He sees it as the most daring, decisive, and damning of all sins and is overwhelmed with his sense of awful guilt that he had not believed on the name of the only begotten Son of God. <clears throat> Well, next, the Holy Spirit convicts us of righteousness. And this means that we come to realize that our very best efforts to reform ourselves and make ourselves presentable to God are to no avail. And we realize that there's an unbridgeable chasm between God and us, and we understand that we are doomed. And the Holy Spirit reveals to us that right standing with God is impossible apart from the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Righteousness, <clears throat> excuse me, is not earned, but bestowed as a gift to those who trust him. The Holy Spirit also convicts the world of coming judgment. The world is wrong in its assessment of Jesus and his teaching, and the error springs not from simple ignorance, but from moral perversity, not from innocent confusion, but from a stubborn willingness not to know. John tells us <clears throat> that he convicts us of judgment because the ruler of this world has been judged. No one wants to believe in judgment. We want to think we can do whatever we wish with impunity, and no day of reckoning will come. But this is erroneous thinking. Jesus' impending victory over sin and death at the cross will prove to the world that the ruler of this world has been condemned. And since Satan stands condemned by the triumph of the cross, those who follow him will share his doom unless if they refuse God's grace. So the question is, have you experienced the conviction of God's spirit in your life that John's described? Have you agreed with God about the state of your heart and your unbelief? You know, it's a pretty serious issue here. It has eternal consequences. So the next thing that Jesus wants the disciples to understand is that the Holy Spirit is going to continue his work as their teacher. I have many more things to say to you, but you can't bear them now. The disciples were in no state to understand or remember everything Jesus had been telling them. The cross and the resurrection had not yet taken place, and they could scarcely envision them, let alone assess their profound significance. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. Now, the Greek word for guide literally means to lead the way. The Holy Spirit is the one who leads the way to the truth. So the question is, what is all the truth? And it's all the revealed truth which is recorded in God's written word. It's the specific truth about the person of Jesus and the significance of what he said and did. 
Jesus is the final and ultimate revelation of God, and all revelation has pointed, pointed toward him and reaches its climax in him. Why can we trust what the Spirit teaches? He will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will disclose to you what is to come. The Holy Spirit speaks exactly what he hears from Christ, and Christ speaks exactly what he hears from the Father. So what the Holy Spirit reveals will always be consistent with previous biblical revelation. The Spirit of truth will not teach one thing concerning Jesus one day and something completely different another day. The, and the church will need further instruction from the Holy Spirit, and this is going to come as the apostles are divinely inspired to write the letters which comprise our New Testament. God has completed his revelation of truth to us, but this is what happens for us. As we study the Bible, the Holy Spirit, who's the true author of these books, leads us to see the Lord Jesus Christ and make clear the meaning of the inspired record. He teaches us what God has already revealed. So why does the Spirit lead us into all the truth? He will glorify me, for he will take of mine and disclose it to you. So the whole purpose of the Spirit's work in the revelation of truth is to glorify Jesus. Nothing brings more glory to the Lord Jesus than for his followers to become steeped or uh, capable or uh, living the truth concerning him. Jesus is glorified when the Spirit opens our eyes to our sinful condition and then reveals that Jesus is an all-glorious Savior and sufficient Savior. Jesus is glorified when Christ assumes his rightful place on the throne of our hearts, which enables us to live lives of faith. Jesus is glorified when our lives are transformed into his image. Glory comes to Jesus as the truths revealed in his word of the gospel they're established in our lives. Now, he's been carefully been preparing his disciples for his departure and impending death. He's told them that God's not going to abandon them. He's provided what they will need through the Holy Spirit, but he has not yet dealt with the significance of the cross. And they need to understand that the cross provides the ultimate perspective in life. A little while and you will no longer see me, and again a little while and you will see me. Well, that was plain as mud to the disciples who said, what is this thing he's telling us? We don't know what he's talking about. But you know, at least they were honest. They cannot figure out what Jesus means by a little while and how on earth it fits into the rest of what he said. They're confused, very confused. And you know what? In one sense, this is comforting because as we grow... The Lord brings into our lives difficult truths or painful experiences, which for a sustained period we can't understand. Anybody ever lived out in the wilderness for a while? Anybody camped out there? Yeah. Well, even mature and well-trained believers find themselves in water over their heads. And God isn't finished with us after we've been Christians for six months, three years, or 50 years. So recognizing their confusion, Jesus tells them they'll weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will grieve, but your grief will turn, be turned to joy. And he then likens the disciples' sorrow over his upcoming death to the pain that a woman experiences during childbirth. The very thing that generates pain and grief, namely childbirth, also generates unspeakable joy. The very cause of their sorrow, the death of Christ on the cross, will become the basis of their joy. You'll have grief now, but I will see you again. And their deep sorrow will turn to incredulity when they stand at the empty tomb and then to unspeakable joy when Jesus later appears to them. Your heart will rejoice and no one will take your joy away from you. 
Their grief will be temporary, but their joy will be permanent. And many of our extremely painful losses and griefs cause us to grow spiritually. Our greatest lessons come out of our deepest hurts and pains. And the cross provides the ultimate perspective on everything in our lives. Well, the next thing that Jesus wants his disciples to understand is that prayer is the gateway to joy. If you ask the Father for anything in my name, he'll give it to you. Up until now, you've asked for nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive so that your joy will be made full. Jesus would no longer be present with the disciples, but they've been given the same freedom and boldness to pray to the Father that had characterized their approach to Jesus during his earthly ministry. No good Jew ever thought of God as his father. And Jesus now tells them they have personal access to the God of the universe and they can ask for anything. Three times he emphasizes that they are to pray in my name. Well, what does that mean? Well, it certainly doesn't mean to just say, in Jesus' name, like a magical incantation at the end of a prayer. Praying in the name of Jesus means praying on the basis of Christ's merit alone. Our standing with God and access to the Father is entirely the work of Jesus. God doesn't owe us anything. And when we try to manipulate him by doing things that we think are good or righteous or religious, he's not obligated to answer. Prayer is not trying to convince God to give us something he is reluctant to give. Verse 27 says, the Father himself loves you. God answers our prayers because he loves us. So imagine, from God's perspective, his delight when he sees the joy we experience as he answers our prayers. We're delighted that he answered, but think about his delight in our delight. And you know what? I thought about this. His delight in answering our prayers by giving us what we ask for is just as great as when he doesn't answer our prayers and says no, because his delight is the same, because his love always does what's very best for us and for his glory. So, uh, interesting thought there. So, the point is that experiencing joy and knowing that you are loved are things that go hand in hand. Well, Jesus brings his teaching to a close. These things I've spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. And peace for the disciples would come as they saw the events that Jesus told them about unfold exactly as he said they would. Jesus tells them they will desert him and be scattered. And can you imagine their guilt after they abandoned Jesus. But even here, he paved the way for their peace by pointing out that even their desertion was foreseen. And you know what? God is not surprised by our failures. He doesn't condemn us. And understanding and trusting God's sovereignty sovereignty in every situation is what leads to peace. The one who loves us dearly is in control of every single thing, including tribulation. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. And the foundation of peace is our Savior's personal victory over death and the forces of hell. He is the triumphant conqueror. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Hallelujah. He is. So with the final promise of ultimate victory, Jesus ends his discourse. And he turns to the Father and begins to pray. And I found this very interesting. Jesus knows the outcome. He knows he's going to triumph because he's just said he's overcome the world. 
Jesus was perfectly omniscient. He knew God's plan made before the foundation of the world. And yet Jesus humbles himself and passionately calls out to God to accomplish his plan. You know, we pray because we don't know the outcome of a situation that we're in. We pray because we want specific answers for things we don't know about. But Jesus prayed knowing exactly what was going to happen. And so all that tells me is there must be a lot more to prayer than what we understand. A lot more to prayer than what we understand and God's purposes for it. So in this prayer, Jesus prays for himself, for his disciples, and for all who ultimately believe. And first of all, he prays, the hour has come. All through the Gospels, he's repeatedly said, my hour is not yet here. My hour has not come yet. But the time is now. And it's the most important moment in redemptive history. It's arrived. It was the hour for which Jesus was born. And John MacArthur calls it the crossroads of eternity. Jesus will offer himself as the only atoning sacrifice for sin. He will bear the wrath of God on the cross so that those he loves can be forgiven and adopted as children of God. He will destroy the ultimate enemy, death, and paradoxically, he will accomplish this by dying on a cross. By any reasonable standard, the cross was an instrument of shame and disgrace. To Jesus, it was the moment of supreme glory, and that's what he prays for first. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Well, not only does Jesus have the glory of the cross in mind, but he adds in verse 5, Now glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Jesus was thinking of his own restoration to the glory which he had with the Father before the world ever existed. Jesus left a glory we will truly never know until we get to heaven. He left the perfect love and fellowship of the Father and the Holy Spirit. And so what Jesus is asking is that through his death and as, as the reward of his finished work, he might be exalted to the right hand of God. Because it brings no glory to the Father if Jesus' sacrifice on the cross is not acceptable or if the, if the Son is not restored to his rightful place in the presence of the Father. And Jesus then gives the reason for his request. For you granted him authority over all flesh that to all whom you've given him, he may give eternal life. Jesus has been given not only all authority in heaven and on earth, but specifically the authority to give eternal life to all those the Father has given him. So contrary to the theme that runs through much of contemporary Christian music today, God's plan and salvation was not all about you. It was about bringing glory to his son. And that's why in eternity past, he promised to redeem a segment of sinful humanity whom he would give to the son to be his subjects, to worship him and exalt him forever. So it's stunningly unimaginable thought that God would choose any of us to be Christ's subjects. But his purpose in doing so was for the honor and glory of his son. Conversely, the son's primary focus is the honor and glory of the father. And because of his perfect love for God, Jesus receives the Father's gift with joy, gladly embracing every sinner whom the Father draws. And he considered the gift given to him so precious that he humbled himself by becoming obedient uh, to the point of death, even death on a cross. And what he gives us is eternal life. And I, I think D.A. Carson had a great quote. Well, this is the Bible quote first. This is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you've sent. This is what D.A. Carson says. No other definition is needed. 
Eternal life is best seen not as everlasting life, but as knowledge of the everlasting one. Because to know God transforms a person and introduces him to a life that he could not otherwise experience. The way in which men come to have eternal life is by coming to know God, which is only possible by coming to know Jesus. I've glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. See, it all comes down to the cross. The cross displayed God's glory like no other event in history. It revealed God's righteousness and justice and holiness by requiring the full payment for sin. But at the same time, the cross dramatically demonstrated God's grace, mercy, and love in sending his only son to die for the sins of people who were his enemies and utterly undeserving of such grace and goodness. The cross also displayed God's omnipotent power as he defeated sin, death, and Satan. The cross displayed the wisdom of God's eternal plan of redemption. You know, you can look at creation and see his power, but the cross is the ultimate display of God's glory. And never forget, never forget that Jesus gave up his glory to save you. Never forget it. Well, Jesus knew that his disciples were paralyzed by the frightening realization that he was leaving them. He gave specific promises to encourage and comfort them. And he now prays in verses 6 through 10 that the Father would ensure that these promises come about. Jesus' confidence was not founded on the resolve or the resourcefulness of the remaining 11. He knew they were going to leave him and abandon him, but on the will and power of God. And Jesus knew that the Father would hear and answer his prayers for the disciples because they were part of those whom God had given him before the foundation of the world. So the striking reality of his prayer is not that it's designed to change God's will, but to call for its fulfillment. And Jesus is now asking the Father to fulfill his promises for these men. And he makes two requests on behalf of the disciples. He prays first for spiritual protection and then that they would be sanctified by the Father. So first of all, he says, Holy Father, keep them in your name that they may be one even as we are. And Jesus begins his requests for his disciples by addressing God as Holy Father. Now, why would he use that term here? It's a, it's a unique situation. He wants to contrast the holiness of God with the hostile, evil world which opposes the truth of God and is going to continually try to lead them into sin and unbelief. Nothing less than the power of the Father's name is adequate for the task of protection. Jesus kept them safe during his mission, but now that he's leaving, he requests his Father to take over this responsibility. <coughs> Excuse me, dangers surround them. And you know what? The disciples could not protect themselves any more than we can protect ourselves. But God is able. And there is not a child of God on earth today that is not indebted to Jesus for this prayer of protection. And consider also that his prayers for us have never ceased. Even now, he is at the right hand of God, pleading with passionate intercession for his own. Your advocate has, nev has never lost and will never lose any case committed to his care. If anyone sins, we have an ad advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Well, in verse 17, Jesus prays for the sanctification of his followers. That was his second request. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Now, the word sanctify comes from the Greek word hagios, which means holy. 
And at its most basic level, holy would be an adjective for God. He's transcendent. He's separate from his creation. So any people or things that are reserved or set apart for God are called holy and sanctified. So sanctification is, first of all, a call to personal holiness. And it is more um, than saying no to sin. Sanctification is the ongoing work of recalibrating our affections to cherish what God cherishes. At its root, sanctification is a miracle of God who moves our affections from the sin that looks so appealing, and he, cha he takes us from that to delighting in obedience. A sure mark of the Spirit's work in our lives is evidenced when we rejoice in what God rejoices in. And there is no higher pur purpose for our pursuit of holiness. That's what it is. Well, ladies, what you need and what I need more than anything else in our Christian lives is personal holiness. More than anything else, what your children, your husband, your neighbors need from you is your personal holiness. It's what Jesus prayed for. It's what he died for. And so the question is, is that the focus of your life? Or are you still wrestling with God over who's controlling your life? Either he's in control or you are. Either God is smarter than you or you are smarter than God is. There's no middle ground. And I'll tell you, <clears throat> I had to wrestle with this. And I, all I can tell you is just give it up and surrender. It's just a lot easier that way. Well, Jesus then tells us how we're sanctified. Thy word is truth. You know, the written word, Arthur Pink says, is unadulterated truth because its author cannot lie. In it, there is no error. It's the final authority. So by it, our thoughts are to be formed and our conduct is to be regulated. By virtue of the fact that God's word is truth, it sanctifies those who obey it. And we will be made holy, set apart from the world, and reserved for God's service to the extent that we think and live in conformity with God's revealed word. Well, then Jesus prays, as you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For their sakes I sanctify myself, that they, they, they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. Well, we need to ask why Jesus sanctifies himself. Because he, he's already sinless. He's already holy. But sanctification, this is where we learn the second meaning, is not only a call to personal holiness, but it's also the call to be set aside for the purpose of God. And Jesus has unflinchingly set himself apart for the will of God. He consecrates himself to the sacrifice of the cross, and it is on the basis of that that his followers are sent. Christ was sent here to reveal the Father and to show forth his glory. We are sent into the world to show forth Christ's glory, which results in glory to the Father. So believers are his agents and instruments to preach his gospel and tell a world of men who are dead that there is life in the one who is mighty to save. Well, having prayed for his glory and for his disciples, Jesus then prays for those who would come to believe in him through the witness of the disciples. That's us. And he made two requests on behalf of these future disciples. And the first thing he prays for is spiritual unity. I ask that they all may be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe you sent me. Unity among true believers is likened to the glorious and mysterious unity between Jesus and his Father. Christian unity is based on the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in each believer. 
The triune God has taken up residence within each one of us, and together we comprise his body. So the core issues that unite true Christians, the glory of God, the substitutionary atonement of Christ for sinners, salvation by grace alone through faith alone, belief in the inerrant word of God, those things are so deep and eternal that they transcend the other things that divide. And we are to love, serve, and care for one another, thinking of others, others as better than ourselves. Now, this unity is so unique and compelling that it attests to the world, the unbelieving world, that Jesus truly is the Son whom the Father has sent. Well, finally, in verses 24 to 26, Jesus rises to his final and highest request. This is mind-boggling. Father, I desire that they also, whom you've given me, be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory, which you've given me, for you love me before the foundation of the world. So the ultimate blessing for believers is Jesus Christ himself, visible in unshielded glory. Jesus looks ahead to the end of the age, and he wants those given to him to be with him where he is and to see his glory. Now, it's not difficult to understand that we want to be with him, but it's staggering to realize that Jesus wants to spend eternity with us. I mean, I don't even want to be with me a lot of the time. <laughs> and that he wants to be with me is amazing. <clears throat> and what makes heaven glorious is Jesus himself. And, you know, I just go off script here. I, I was thinking about the verse in Psalm 150. 16 verse 15 where it says precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his godly ones now I always thought that was quite honestly a really weird verse until I thought about it in this context and you know why our deaths are precious to him it's because he knows we're going to see him as he is he's waited from eternity to reveal himself to us when we're in his presence and we will see him as he is that's why our deaths are precious to him. It's what he died for. To I don't know. Does that make any sense? I mean, it's just, just crazy to me that he wants to be with us. So, you know, the disciples could testify they had seen Jesus' glory when he lived with them, but they hadn't witnessed his glory in unveiled splendor. And the revelation of Jesus' glory to his father's followers is predicated upon the father's love for the son. And he prays that they may see my glory, which you've given to me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. So the ultimate hope of men lies in the love of the Father for the Son. That is, in the eternal relationship of love, that's the essence of the Trinity. This loving relationship extends from eternity to eternity, from before the foundation of the world, to the consummation, to the end of the ages, when Jesus' glory will be fully revealed to his own. Well, what's that going to be like? Well, you know what? The writer of this gospel was given a glimpse. And he told us about it in Revelation chapter 5, verses 11 through 13. Then I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne. And the living creatures and the elders and the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might, and honor and glory and blessing. And every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them, I heard saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. 
lady's mission accomplished. Let's pray. Father, your word is a gift to us that we don't even begin to understand, and I thank you for the riches in it. I thank you for these women and their diligence to study. I pray that this would become alive to us in ways we never would have imagined. I pray you'll recall these things to our mind uh, and that we will go and we will leave in awe of the cross and the fact that it is the supreme revelation of your glory. And I pray that um, we, will, we, we rejoice in the cross. I pray we'd learn to do that in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. I... I have... Um